All right. Hi. Welcome, everybody. So I'd like to uh, also welcome uh, individuals watching remotely. Um, and it's, it's a real pleasure uh, today to introduce to you David Mullins. Uh, David is an assistant professor of microbiology and immunology and of medical education at Dartmouth, and he's an original native of Virginia. Um, so David received his bachelor's degree at Virginia Tech and his PhD as well, and um, then did his postdoctoral work at the University of Virginia, and also began his academic research lab uh, as an assistant professor at the University of Virginia. And um, we were lucky to recruit David to Dartmouth in 2011. Um, but before this, David was really kind of legendary to me. Um, I don't know if you remember when you're a postdoc and you're training and that paper comes out that you're like, wow. Well, this for me was, was David's paper, um, who uh, very early on showed some very elegant studies about T cell memory and cancer that inspired a lot of my work. And um, David's research has since identified a number of um, important mechanisms governing T cell entry into tissues and tumors and now moving to other cell, other immune cell types as well. Um, and um, he's received uh, numerous uh, awards, uh, research grants from the NIH and the NCI, uh, just to name a few, the Melanoma Research Alliance, the uh, Harry J. Lloyd Charitable Trust. David's also received numerous uh, prestigious teaching awards, and he's a member of the Academy of Master Faculty Educators at Dartmouth. Um, and uh, these are just a few of the things. He's also a um, scientific advisory board uh, member at Q uh, Biologics, which leads me to the uh, COI statement that I have to read. Um, so he's a scientific advisor for Q in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. He's received research funds from Q Biologics. Um, Alan Hartford, MD, PhD, and course director for the CME activity reports that Dr. Mullen's relationship with industry has been resolved by validating the content of his presentation through peer review. And Dr. Mullins will not discuss off-label use of products, drug products. He will not receive compensation for this presentation. So we're done with housekeeping. Um, it's my real pleasure to introduce David and hear about your work, David. Well, it's, it's nice to be here. Um, so as many of you know, I used to spend more time on this side of the campus and recently with the, oops, with the uh, formation of the new medical education department, I spend a little bit more time in Hanover, so it's nice to be back over on this side. Uh, so as Mary Jo mentioned, our lab for many years has been interested in cancer immunotherapy. And specifically, many years ago at UVA, we were doing clinical trials in patients under the premise that if we could just get that T cell, if we could just get that cancer-specific T cell, all the problems would be solved. And the lab I was working in identified a melanoma antigen. We generated that antigen, vaccinated patients, sat around waiting for the tumors to melt, and, and, and decried how we would all lose our jobs. And, as, as you might expect, uh, the results were not what we expected, which is why we're here today. Uh, 700 and some patients 
we had a 95% immunogenicity response, which meant 95% of those patients responded to the vaccine and had circulating T cells. We had a less than 1% response in terms of tumor growth or tumor regression. Clinical response. Clinical response was essentially non-existent. And it launched us on this whole path of saying, why did this vaccine that worked not work? And it led us to the observation that inducing T cells in circulation doesn't matter. I tell my students the story quite often of, of you know, when I was a child, my favorite baseball team was the Atlanta Braves. And they were terrible. It's terrible. So they thought, you know, if we could just get a good pitcher, that would be the problem. That'd be the solution. We'd get a good pitcher. So they went out and they hired the best pitcher they could find as a free agent. He signs on the dot. He's supposed to pre premiere that night. He's supposed to win the game. Doesn't show up. Doesn't show up at the stadium. Didn't show up because turns out he wasn't a native English speaker and he didn't understand how to read the exit signs on the interstate. So he got on the beltway in Atlanta and he drove around the beltway until he ran out of gas. <laughs> So the best pitcher in the world doesn't win the baseball game for you if he doesn't get to the stadium. Okay? So, so we, we applied that same, same idea to, to cancer immunotherapy. The best T cells in the world don't help you if they don't get into the tumor. So that launched us on this whole line of research of understanding why, why T cells, how they interpret exit signs, how they know where to go and when to go and why to go. And you know, we were lucky, I'll, I'll say we were lucky some years ago, I stood at a poster at a Keystone meeting, and I'll say this to, to, I'll be old for a minute and say this to the students. When you go to meetings, talk to people, because I ended up standing at a poster for 30 or 40 minutes talking to some student I'd never met who turned out to be Mary Jo's student, and launched us on, on collaborations that landed me, ended up coming from Virginia to here. So what we're going to talk about today is induction and targeting. Now, moving away from T cells to innate immunity, we, we, we kind of went through the T cell thing and realized We've identified chemokine receptors. I think our work has at least influenced the CAR T-cell work in terms of targeting. And now we're going back to, to basics and saying, well, what actually draws the T-cells into the tumor to begin with? And it turns out it's really the innate cells. So we started focusing on innate cells. And the story I'll present to you today is a piece of what's going on in our lab. It's primarily done by um, Amanda Costa in the lab. It's been Amanda's thesis project using bacteria and bacteria extracts to create those exit signals, to create the target in the tumor that provides the exit sign that allows extravasation. Um, other, other people have contributed, Matt Alexander and Kia Butler. Kia is now a postdoc at Merck. We're, we're lucky to have Steve Firing here as, as a very close and, and trusted collaborator on these projects. And we're collaborating with QBiologics in Vancouver, who is, who is providing the bacterial extracts that I'll describe. So, so we're going back to basics, this idea of using bacteria to treat cancer. And you can do that a couple of ways. So Coley, many of you know, you, you all know that story. William Coley had a patient come, come to present, had sarcoma in the wrist, open sarcoma. And he came up with this idea. He noticed that if you actually put bacteria into these open wounds, that in some patients, intentionally infecting the wound would actually cause the tumor to regress. You know, he hypothesized the bacteria was competing with the tumor for you as a host, which wasn't quite right. Really, the bacteria was inducing quite a profound immune response. It took several decades. And it's interesting, if you look at some of the writings of the era in the 1920s, um, you know, the problem with Coley's work was it cured some people and it killed some people. Um, it sent some people into sepsis. We didn't have antibiotics to control it. 
They were using live bacteria to infect uh, wounds. But it set the principle that bacteria could be a useful way to treat cancer, even though it wasn't really known how. And it's interesting, you know, uh, there was just something on Twitter came out the other day about Dartmouth was the site of the first clinical x-ray. You know, it was, it, was, it was x-rays that actually scuttled some of his work. It was this idea that, that radiation is the big new thing. We don't need immune therapy anymore. We have radiation. Radiation will cure cancer. So the work <laughs> fell out of favor until maybe the, until about the 60s. And then this idea of using BCG. And that BCG was developed as an attenuated strain of mycobacterium that could be used as an immunization, but as many of you know, if you infuse it into the bladder, it can be used to treat cancer. And for decades, it really, it's still, it's actually still debated. What does BCG do in the bladder to get rid of cancer? And what we do know, we know it induces a lot of innate immune pathways and patterns, and it induces a lot of infiltration of immune cells. It probably doesn't directly kill, but it set the stage then for many years Bacteria can be useful. Then just one example of work that's going on at Dartmouth, Steve Firing's lab, David Bizick's lab, to name a few, are using bacteria in preclinical models, probably someday to, to progress in the clinical trials, of actually using live bacteria, attenuated strains, directly into tumors. Putting the bacteria directly into the tumor induces innate immune pathways. Those innate immune pathways inform and amplify adaptive immune pathways and lead to tumor regression. And so work has progressed over many centuries. This is an example from Dr. Firing's work where they're using this attenuated toxoplasma. And, and, and you can see if the, here's just, this is the, here's a beautiful one. There's a survival curve, PBS using the attenuated strain. So dramatically reduced tumor burden and increased survival with these bacterial-based therapies. And it turns out this is a really good therapy if you can get the bacteria into the tumor and if, if the host can tolerate live bacteria. But we launched onto this idea of, as Mary Jo, I'll go back to some really old data that I just love to show. We went back to this idea to say, well, fine, if, if the tumor is growing here on the, on the mouse and I can inject bacteria directly into it, I might be able to target it. But what would happen if the tumor metastasizes and the tumor's dispersed or the tumor's in a site where I can't get the bacteria into it? Could we take advantage of the idea that there might be organ or tissue-specific immunity that we could use to target the anti-cancer efficacy. And as Mary Jo mentioned, it goes back to very old work that we did, but, but we think it's very informative, and, and especially given something Mary Jo just published. We looked at vaccinations using, in this case, dendritic cells. But what we're doing here, the important key here, is we're just giving an immunization into a compartment. And if we put those immunizations into a skin-draining lymph node, or we give the immunization intravenously and we target lung-draining nodes because these are cell-based immunization. It goes into circulation. If it goes IV, the first place it deposits the lungs, it goes to lung-draining nodes. So we're setting up immunity either in, the, either in the skin or in the lungs. And we let those mice rest for 21 days, and then we come back with a tumor challenge, and we challenge either in the skin or intravenously to give metastatic-like lesions in the lungs. So we've immunized in the skin or the lungs, we challenge in the skin or the lungs, we do the crisscross, and then we wait and we assess tumor burden. And if there's no immunization at all, if we, if we give tumor burden in the lungs, we get a lot of tumor. If we give tumor in the skin, we get a very large tumor. If we've immunized into the skin, we knock down that tumor burden in the skin. The immunization into the skin-draining node protects against a skin tumor, but immunization into the skin draining node doesn't really do a whole lot to protect you against lung tumors. And you flip that around and say immunization into the lung draining node 
dramatically protects you against lung tumor, but doesn't protect you against the skin draining tumor. So this was our first thought that it's one of two things. It's either T cell targeting to the compartment or T cells laying down a memory in the compartment. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll give a shout out here. Mary Jo just published beautiful work, Mary Jo and Ina, showing in the skin, in the skin compartment with melanoma, skin resident memory T cells are, are vital for that process. And if so if you can reactivate those T cells that are in that compartment, you can control it really well. So we would interpret this to say if we activate or induce skin resident memory, we get great response. If we induce or activate lung resident cells, we get great response in that compartment, but it's compartmental. So we asked, is there, we started to think about, is there tissue resident or organ specific memory that could be reactivated in some other way, perhaps with bacteria? And it goes back to this, this idea, before I get to the approach, it goes to the idea that there have been so many observations of late over the years of how infection, and especially acute infection, relates to tumor control. One of the classic examples, I should have put a slide and I'm sorry I didn't, one of the classic examples is osteosarcoma in dogs. So what's the prescribed treatment for osteosarcoma in a dog? Amputation, okay, you take off the limb. And it turns out it's not a clean surgery, it's a dirty surgery, and about 50% of those animals get post-operative infections in the surgical site wound. You go back and look retrospectively, the animals that got the post-operative infections have an almost 0% of cancer, rate of cancer recurrence. The animals that didn't have a post-operative infection where the surgery was successful have a 75% probability of recurrence in that same site. The acute infection at the surgical wound site actually set up an anti-cancer immunity. Mary Jo did early work. It was really elegant showing uh, you did your CD4 depletion, but the idea was you did work and it seems like the wound itself is immunogenic, okay? Well, why is the wound immunogenic? Is it the actual wound or is it bacteria in the wound and bacteria to the site? We thought maybe it's got something to do with the infection that's going on in the site. So we, we, we working with the, our collaborators at Q, we came up with this idea that maybe bacteria-induced immune responses could be powerful ways to get anti-tumor activity in maybe both animal models and patients. It's been observed, certainly, in patients, at least correlative. Um, and, and, and there's really sort of a paucity of safe and effective means to, to get clinical immune therapy using bacteria, especially if you're using live organisms, or if the organism has to be targeted to the site. So we wanted to do something more systemic. So in this project, what we're looking for is a way to safely and effectively harness the anti-cancer potential of bacteria um, and, and we came up with the scheme to use repeated subcutaneous immunizations of killed bacteria, killed bacteria product. The data I'll show you, we're using Klebsiella, Klebsiella, Klebsiella pneumoniae isolate. It's going to be abbreviated KB throughout. And we're looking at lung cancer. Now, why did we pick Klebsiella and lung cancer? Because we think that part of the missing, missing link in all this is when Coley did his work, he was using Serratia marcescens and Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and he was looking at skin tumors. Well, you get some Pseudomonas in the skin, but where do you mostly get Pseudomonas infections? It's often a respiratory infection. It can be a GI infection. We came up with this idea that maybe, maybe really the issue here is to match the bacteria to the organ site where we want to induce the immunity. Because you've all been exposed to Klebsiella. You've all had Klebsiella pneumoniae respiratory infections, whether you know it or not, and you're all probably immune to it. 
So what would happen if we actually used Klebsiella to reactivate whatever memory you have in that compartment and ask, can that translate into directly or indirectly anti-cancer immunity? So it turns out in a mirroring model of LLC is Lewis lung carcinoma. So in this model, the animals are injected intravenously with Lewis lung carcinoma. Again, that intravenous injection populates the lungs with cancer cells that extravasate and give metastatic-like lesions. In this particular uh, image, you can see the dots. The, the dots are tumors, tumor foci in the lungs. And in a preclinical model, we did prophylaxis. So we treated the animals. We injected them subcutaneously at rotating subcutaneous sites over the course of about 10 days every other day with killed Klebsiella and induced tumor, and sure enough, we saw a very dramatic reduction in the number of tumors in the lung. This is showing with Klebsiella. I'm sorry I didn't put this, the data in. We've done this, we did this, for example, with a non-lung pathogen and saw no efficacy. Right. Here, here, survival, all the animals eventually did succumb, but there was a statistically significant change in survival. Now, is, is this because we're using lung tumors in the lung compartment, or is it because we're lighting up some immune response in the lung? So if we switch it over and use B16, which is a murine melanoma, and you can put the B16 in subcutaneously or intravenously. If you do it intravenously, you get lung mets. It's a model we use frequently. The, the METs are, are black. Here you can see this one's very populated. These all have METs. Here's the placebo treated, here's the untreated. Again, we saw a, a, a significant, and we've done this experiment many times, we always see a very potent inhibition of the B16 growth in the lungs after the treatment. Now interestingly, if we, 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 we thought, could this actually be an artifact? Could this be that, in fact, we're putting the B16 in intravenously, and like my baseball player, they're just driving around the interstate. We're not seeing tumors in the lungs because they never extravasate out or because we kill them in circulation. So if we cut this experiment off at two hours, if we inject the tumors and cut it off at two hours and look at tumor burden by genetic means or by PCR amplification of, of melanoma genes, we see equal agraphment. So we do believe the tumors go in, populate the lungs equivalently, and that we're mediating an immune control here with this bacterial essentially priming of bacteria-specific memory in the lungs. And again, it's interesting to point out, there's no, there's no overt tumor antigen in this bacteria. The work at Hopkins a few years ago that was really, really great was using bacteria but the bacteria carried a tumor antigen. The bacteria went in, lit up immunity, gave prime into a tumor antigen. Here, we don't have a tumor antigen. And we haven't gotten, we haven't gotten yet quite to the level of testing whether there are antigen-specific responses here, but we believe innate and adaptive are, are important here. Now, here, here we did the same thing. We did intradermal tumors, the mice and QB, uh, QBKPNs, an older abbreviation for KB. This is treatment with the Klebsiella product. Now, remember I showed you we injected dendritic cells in the skin and we controlled skin tumors? Here we're injecting the Klebsiella into skin, going to the skin draining nodes. We get this really nice control in the lungs, and yet look at this. We don't get any change at all in the dermal tumor. We don't get any change at all in the dermal tumor. So what that's telling us is it's not, in this case, where we injected the bacteria. We think it's where the immune memory to the bacteria was already residing in the host. 
And we do have correlation data with our collaborators at Q that in fact when we do this intraderm I'm sorry, yeah, this intradermal or subcutaneous injection with the bacteria, surprisingly to us, it does very quickly access circulation, circulates throughout the animal, killed bacterial components. So we interpret this as we interpret this as lighting up the immune response in the organ compartment where you've previously had the infection. We moved it to a treatment model. If we change it, this was all prophylaxis. If we change it to a treatment model where, in fact, we induce the tumor, then we start the bacterial treatment. If we wait till one day after tumor, we see reduction. By five days after treatment, it's still statistically significant, but it's, it's dropping off a little bit. We obviously haven't really optimized this for dosing. At least it's proof of principle that it could potentially work. It's not purely a prophylactic issue. It could be a treatment issue, too. So, so we really wanted to dig into this question of why do you get specific response to Klebsiella that appears in the lung? And, and why are we getting Klebsiella response at all? And we went back to our source for the mice, and it turned out the mice that we were sourcing from jacks were coming from colonies that periodically tested positive for Klebsiella. The very good probability that the mice had been exposed to Klebsiella before we ever got them. So we sourced mice from a different vendor, from Taconic, mice that had been raised specifically, and these are not, it's important to note, these are not germ-free mice. These are Klebsiella-free mice. These are mice that have never been exposed to Klebsiella. And we got them in. We, in, we injected, or actually in, um, instilled, live Klebsiella pneumoniae into some of the mice, rested them for at least 21 days, came back, treated them either with vehicle, killed Klebsiella pneumoniae, or killed E. coli subcutaneously. Then we go down, we do an intravenous B16 and look for tumor control. And what we saw is really interesting here. Here's the colony status for, for Klebsiella. I apologize, this one, this should be a negative, and I'm sorry for that. The first two are, are mice that were sourced from Jack's colony, had Klebsiella. Untreated mouse, mouse treated, treated with killed Klebsiella, nice reduction in the tumor burden. Now we go over here to these four, which are from the Taconic colony, where the mice had not seen Klebsiella, and in fact, no response here. And wow, sorry that <laughs> I guess my Mac to PC. There's a bar here. You just have to believe me. Um, <laughs> when we treat with Klebsiella, a very minor reduction, but not significant. And from experiment to experiment, it varies, but never significant reduction. So the Klebsiella treatment doesn't seem to work in mice that have never been exposed to Klebsiella. But if we take those same mice and we pre-treat them, we pre-expose them to Klebsiella, we wait three weeks, and then we try it. Now we go back to something that looks very much like the mice that came from Jack's that had already seen Klebsiella. So that told us, in fact, it's the exposure to the pathogen that leads to the responsiveness to the killed pathogen that mediates the immunity. You know, I, life, I'm teaching micro right now to the medical students, and I would keep showing them that Pasteur quote, you know, chance favors the prepared mind. And this is, this is one of those cases where it happened for us. We had a technician who left and didn't, and left some mice sitting on the shelf downstairs, and we weren't really sure what to do with them. And the technician called one day and said, hey, you want me to get rid of those mice? And I said, yeah. And about two minutes later, I said, oh, crap. And I ran to the colony. I said, don't, don't, don't. Don't get rid of those mice. It turned out he had infected them with Klebsiella like seven months ago. 
we all forgot about them, and we thought this could be a chance. So we did this experiment. I wish, see, I wish I could just say we thought of this, but we didn't. We had these mice sitting around for six months. We thought, what are we going to do with these six-month-old mice? Oh, that's right, they've seen Klebsiella. We redid it. The experiment still worked. The experiment still worked. Now, those were in barrier facility. They were in micro-isolators and barriers. And the barrier is testing negative for Klebsiella. So we think they had the one exposure, and that's it. And then they're still responding. So that, to me, again, is at least evidence that the exposure to the bacteria is laying down a memory response that we're reactivating and getting anti-tumor immunity. Now what if, we, what if we mix it up? What if we mix up the bacteria? So we did, a, we did another series of experiments. We got away from Klebsiella. This time we pre-infected with, with strep pneumoniae or Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Again, sourcing mice that came from colonies that hadn't seen those things. And instead of treating them with killed Klebsiella, we treated them with killed Pseudomonas aeruginosa or killed <laughs> strep pneumoniae. And the, the results seem to match up fairly well. Here, no pre-infection. The pseudomonas, you get a lot of tumors. If you pre-infect it with strep pneumoniae and treat it with pseudomonas, you, get a, you actually do in this one. You do get some, some reduction. In, 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 in this one, uh, you're treating with the same. So treating mismatched, you get a little bit of a reduction. But if I pre-infect with pseudomonas and I treat with pseudomonas compared to no pre-infection and treatment with pseudomonas, a very, very dramatic reduction. Here, no pre-treatment. Again, sorry, my bar fell out. Here, you can see it at the bottom of the error bar. No pre-treatment, treatment with strep pneumonia. Here, pre-infect with strep pneumonia, treat with strep pneumonia. Beautiful response. Pre-infect with pseudomonas, the strep doesn't work. It's not just prime boost with different acute infections. It looks like it really is prime and boost with a specific bacteria, that you're having an immune response to a particular bacteria that gives you the effect. So at least it's consistent. We haven't gotten there, but at least it's consistent that anti-tumor immunity is through reactivation of a pathogen-specific memory. And could be, could be tissue-resident memory, and that hopefully will be our next major project to look at that. So we asked, hmm. Could adaptive immunity be involved? And this is, again, one of those experiments where you're so glad you did the experiment. I went to Virginia Tech, and you know, when I was there, we had a terrible football team, and then they got to be really, really good, and the students would come in and say, oh, we're playing Temple tonight. You know, that'll be a blow-off. And sure, and I would say, you better go. You better go, because, you know, and then we would lose. You know, you always lost the games you didn't expect. So she's told me, you know, that's why I don't go to Vegas. This is one of those experiments. I made a bet with the student. I said, I bet, I bet you 25 cents or something. I don't remember. What did we bet, Amanda? A quarter? I hope. <laughs> That's all it was. You might owe you some money. I might owe you some money. I said, when we knock out, we knock out adaptive immunity, this whole thing will go away. This whole thing will go away. So we did the experiment. And we did this, we did this with our collaborators out in Vancouver. Um, so we, we, they, they helped us. They did the, the knockouts, and we did the, uh, the rags. Turns out if you, if you have a placebo treatment, you treat with the Klebsiella. By the way, that's one of the nice things about this. This, this, this result came from, from uh, Vancouver, and they see exactly the same thing we do. Different mouse colony, different source, different hands, different people. We had a collaborator then at um, um, Hamilton. Ontario, same thing, got the same results. So we've repeated this with, with other institutions. Placebo 
Klebsiella pneumonia treatment knocks it out. Now, if you knock out CD25, take CD25 positive cells, and granted, that's not a perfect experiment. The goal there was to knock out effector cells. Could also knock out regulatory cells. But if you ablate out CD25 positive cells, you don't see a dramatic change in placebo. The KB treatment, the, the killed bacteria still works. Knock out CD4 cells, the killed bacteria still works. Go all the way to a RAG knockout that's got no adaptive immunity, the Klebs killed Klebsiella still works. Okay? So what that says to us is the initial, the initial effector phase must be innate. It must be innate. Now what we do also have is evidence, we have evidence downstream that if you do have an intact adaptive immunity, we have evidence that we are getting antigen presentation. We are getting cross-priming of CD8 cells. We are actually lighting this compartment up with CD8 chemoattractants, and we're getting potentially CD8s in the compartment. So adaptive immunity may play a role downstream, and actually that may be a really cool thing to pursue downstream is to say, hey, if we're lighting this compartment up, if we're softening it up with the innate response here, then we come back with something like a CAR T cell, we might really eradicate this, and again, next project. But, so we asked, what's going on with the innate system? So here, this is just principal component analysis that's for 32 different chemokines and cytokines. The only important thing to hear Notice here is the clustering of the placebo versus the KB treatment. And you can see the placebo response clusters and the KB treatment is dispersed across this principal component analysis. It's 32 different innate associated cytokines. The, the take home message is to say you are impacting the innate cytokine signaling. You're actually increasing the proportion of inflammatory monocytes in, in, in the, the blood you're increasing the proportion of neutrophils in the blood quite substantially. So you're setting up, it seems like, the possibility of good innate response in those animals. Looking in the lungs of placebo versus KB Klebsiella treated, you see increased proportion or number of NK cells, increased proportion or number of macrophages. The T cell proportions at this time stay about the same. The myeloid compartment goes up a little, and the important thing to note is we see about the same number of neutrons. We see more interstitial macrophages, and we do see more NK cells. One issue that we'd published previously with our collaborators at Q was this idea of, of macrophage skewing. This is just one ratio of CD80 to 206, saying there appears to be an M1 skewing of the macrophages in the lungs of the animals with the Klebsiella treatment. And it's actually it's a little hard to do M1, M2 in, in mice. The reagents are not quite as good as we have in humans. As an aside, I will tell you, the company, um, I collaborated with them on another trial where we're using killed E. coli. And we're using killed E. coli to treat patients with Crohn's disease, which people instinctively say, what, what on earth? You're treating cancer and autoimmunity with the same approach. Well, Crohn's, you know, is, is probably not autoimmunity, it's probably dysbiosis and an and, and M2 skewing of the macrophages. And so a publication that came out in, uh, about a year ago, we showed substantial M1 skewing in response to gram-negative killed bacteria that in a um, compassionate use setting showed efficacy in, in Crohn's. We haven't gotten there with cancer, but... Oh, sorry, but we think the M1 skewing might be important. We think the accumulation of NK cells might be important. So we wanted to pursue those a little bit. So since it seemed like it was innate, one of the first things that 
that Amanda did was to say, well, what if we knock out MITE88 function? And as many of you know, MITE88 is one of the adapter proteins that follows TLR activation, TLR signaling being induced by bacteria. We get, I guess I owe Amanda another 50 cents because I thought this one would show a <laughs> different result too. The MITE88, it turns out, here's MITE88, knockout mouse, tumor burden here. MITE88, knockout treatment, you, you substantially knock it down. So MITE88 signaling seemed not to be necessary for the major anti-tumor effect that we saw. So that, that made us think, well, okay, if it's not MITE88, maybe this M1 skewing is important at some level, but maybe that's not the big thing. Maybe it's this accumulation of natural killer cells. So that was the next thing Amanda looked at. She used an anti-NK1.1 antibody and successfully ablated out the NK cell population, um, both in, in the blood and the spleen and the lung. She checked the lung as well, got rid of the NK. Now the interesting thing with the NK ablation is that if you take a placebo, uh, an untreated animal, you add the anti-NK1.1, wow, look at that tumor burden. Um, those are not even countable. So ablating the NK cell dramatically increased the tumor burden. And that's, that's consistent with literature to say NK cells are important in the lung, tremendously important in other organs like the liver, but important in the lung for knocking down tumor burden. So, so we weren't surprised at that result. The interesting thing was the KB response seemed to be dependent. Here, let's see if I can, I can quantify it for you. Here, if we look at, no, I can't quantify that one. If we look here, we have some level of tumor burden in the placebo. The KB treatment knocks down that level of tumor burden. Anti-NK1.1, we have more tumor burden to start with, but the treatment with the, the killed Klebsiella doesn't do anything. The efficacy of the killed Klebsiella is lost. So even though you're starting with a higher tumor burden, you don't, you don't reduce it at all. And it turns out that that's probably through the NK cell's ability to recognize through NKG2D, the NK cell receptor, to recognize the tumor cells. So NK effector molecules following treatment, you see more granzyme, more perforin, uh, granzyme B is quite up, so the NK cells seem primed up. Now if you take this and say here's placebo, here's KB treatment, knock it down, knock down the tumor burden. If you take that whole thing and you put it into an NKG2D knockout mouse, Sorry, my bar is falling off here. I'll go like this. No statistical difference. So you lose the ability of the, Kleb, the killed Klebsiella if you knock out the function of the NK cells. And it turns out we haven't really worked this out to the level we would like. But in, in mice, Ray 1 is one of the prime um, ligands for NKG2D. And it turns out we see an increase both in the host cells and especially in the tumor cells, in the expression of that NK1 ligand, NKG2D ligand. So it says, to, uh, I'm sorry, Steve, yeah. It's, I think it's really interesting that when you take out the NK cells, yep. um, you, you go through the roof with the amount of tumor. Yes. Right? Whereas if you take, take out NKG2D alone, without the treatment, that doesn't happen. Yep but you need it for the treatment. You need it for the treatment. So and whatever it is about the NKs that's suppressing the tumors originally, it's using something different. 
We, it's, it's really interesting. We have such a variation. When we, we, we did some studies before I came here where we were knocking out NK cells. And you know, we would always have to, we actually ended up having to abort the studies because the livers would just, just explode with tumors. And so we started looking at the literature and it turns out that it doesn't seem to change the engraftment. You, get, you seem to get equivalent number of cells into each of these compartments. But this, like this old B16 model we talk about using intravenous injection of B16, it turns out if you, if you inject B16, you wait two hours, you take apart a mouse, you PCR, you'll find, you'll find gene signature for the B16 all over the place. In most of the compartments, it seems like the NK cells check it. And then, but, but they can't quite check it in the lungs, and you end up with this lung model, and we all act like that's the only place that the mouse has tumor, when in reality it probably has micro-smets all over the place, okay? Um, yeah, but I agree with you, and we, we looked at that. There was a lot, there was variation with the NKG2D knockout, more so than the uh, wild type, but not, not an order of magnitude more tumor, like we saw with the NK, so absolutely. But it's the only thing, and the only thing I can say is it doesn't seem to be at the engraftment step. So, and, and, and I think, oh, sorry, and I think it's really interesting, and, and we're trying with the collaborators out in, in Vancouver to really pursue this, to really say, could the effect be direct or indirect on the tumor itself? So if the, Cleb, if the killed Klebsiella is changing the microenvironment in the lung, and actually we have evidence the killed Klebsiella, believe it or not, goes from intradermal circulation, even some of it gets into the lung, it seems to be impacting the tumor here. I mean, these are tumor, these, the way this experiment was done was these were um, fluorescently, fluorescent uh, dye expressing, I'm sorry, fluorescent molecule expressing tumor. So put them into the animal, extract them back out, gate on the fluorescent tumor, and sure enough, when they were treated with the Klebsiella, the level of Ray 1 went up. You can treat the tumors with, with killed bacteria in vitro and the level of Ray 1 will go up as will a number of different things. So the tumor has the ability, tumors actually, people, many people might not appreciate that most tumors express TLR receptors or TLRs. And so the tumor can respond directly. We don't know if it's a direct effect or an indirect <coughs> effect, but we think it's a duality here, that you're priming the NK cells while also making the tumor a better target for the NK cells. And that that's why you have, you have a fairly good response with that early innate. So thank you. Yeah. So uh, for that, for this, this is where we are with this project. We are in the process of writing it up for publication with, with a few more tweaks. Um, and, and as soon as I'm finished with my teaching obligations this spring, it'll be R01 time. Yay. Okay. Subcutaneous injection of this killed Klebsiella pneumoniae reduces tumor burden in models of metastatic-like disease. The important comparator is it doesn't do anything for the dermal tumors. I didn't, I didn't show you data. We used Staph aureus and tried Staph aureus. It dented the dermal tumors a little. Wasn't dramatic. Turns out, guess what? Klebsiella is gram-positive, Staph is gram-negative. I'm sorry, I got that backwards. Klebs gram-negative, Staph's gram-positive. The Staph just wasn't inducing the kind of massive response. So, we haven't gone to a gram-negative skin pathogen yet to see. But at least the efficacy is certainly associated with prior exposure to the live Klebsiella. That's, we, we call this site specificity, the idea that if you, in, if you challenge with a bacteria or a bacteria extract from a pathogen that typically infects a particular organ, 
is there site specificity? Are you lighting up the immunity in that target organ because that's where, in fact, the resident memory lies? Now, Mary Jo, I, I just referenced Mary Jo's beautiful paper in Skin talking about resident memory T cells. There's increasing evidence in the field of memory and even resident memory natural killer cells. So it's possible that we have uh, that kind of uh, phenomenon. And that's something we hope to look at. The efficacy, at least early on, doesn't require adaptive immunity, although downstream adaptive activity may be beneficial. And we're looking at the idea that this could be used as a priming regime. I didn't show you the data, but those, those late lungs are replete with interferons and chemokines, so it may be a really nice place to go in with adoptive therapy um, and, and try to knock out the rest of the tumor. NK cells seem to be the major anti-tumor effectors, at least in the early part of the phase, and it's probably bacteria-induced expression of NKG2 ligands on the tumors that may drive it. So our model system, we're really looking at this idea that the, immune, that the, the challenge, the initial challenge, sets up some kind of memory in the lung compartment that, that in fact, I'm sorry, sets up an infection in the lung compartment, that infection or dendritic cells carrying the infection or B cells, we don't know for sure, but we think something's going down in the lymph node giving rise to a memory that repopulates the lungs. So we have lungs that are replete with some type of memory. Early on, we said, you know, this must be, this must be adaptive. We were T cell people, we said it must be adaptive. When we did the RAGs, Boy, that was strong evidence. Uh, we, we've actually done, didn't show, but we've actually done CD8 depletions and shown the CD8 depletions take out not just circulating cells, but it seemed to take out resident cells, and that didn't, that knocked out the, uh, sorry, that didn't knock out the efficacy either. So if we, if we can reactivate it somehow, we do a sub-Q injection, that bacteria gets to the lungs, reactivates whatever memory's there, the memory can light up, either directly affect the tumor in the case of NK cells or indirectly affect the tumor in the case of T cells. So going forward, we're looking at how to characterize what kind of resident memory might be in the lungs in response to the bacteria, look at the role of potential lung resident memory in the innate compartment, and then combine that up with T cell therapy and ask, can this be a prime and boost regimen or actually a conditioning regimen to make the animals more susceptible? So. So with that, I, I appreciate you all coming and thank you for your time. Yes, sir. Okay, um, you started with the DCG and the response to uh, bladder cancer. Yeah. How does this tie back? I mean, is yeah. BCG something that infects your bladder? Or it's, yeah, it's interesting. Um, BCG is, is probably not something that would infect your bladder, and yet there's evidence in the patients that when they receive the BCG therapy, there's at least correlative data to say that you get immune responses in other parts of the body with the BCG therapy. The response in the bladder might be direct. It might be that you're, it's probably that you're inducing a lot of chemokines, a lot of innate inflammation, eventual adaptive Role. But in that case, I really, I really brought it to bear mostly to the, the idea that bacteria have been used and there is an efficacy. But in that case, for the bladder cancer, you know, what would be the really interesting thing? It'd be really interesting to put BCG in the bladder and come back six months later and ask, now can I avoid the installation and just give you an intradermal injection of killed BCG? Yeah, See something good. in the bladder? People I would like that. Then. I think they would. Yeah, they would. And and we don't we don't know that. Um, yeah. <clears throat> 
Hey, John. So, like you said, David, the RAD knockout data, wow, it's, yeah. that's so surprising. Um, so, can you enlighten us a little bit more about what types of innate, like, NK memory, and is there a chance for NK T cell memory? So, yeah, so Mary Jo brings up the point, is it, could it be NK T cell memory, and that's possible, and we haven't looked at, we haven't looked at that at all. Okay. There's, there's an increasing body of literature to say that you can have NK memory, and, and even an innate memory in which you aren't responding to classic antigens and through for an MHC restricted, like a T cell receptor, that in fact what you're responding to is TLR signatures. That you can respond to a particular set of microenvironmental cues or TLR signatures to say, wow, I've seen that signature before. In lieu of an antigen, I'll take that signature as means to reactivate. Yeah, Louis Lanier out at UCSF is really driving a lot of this work. We've just started to scratch the surface. You know, we weren't going there. You know, we were so convinced that we were, well, we were really convinced that, that the bacteria was an adjuvant. The bacteria was an adjuvant. It revved up the dendritic cells. The dendritic cells presented a lot of tumor antigen. You brought CD8s back and killed everything, killed the cancer. That's what we thought. You know, we were stunned when that didn't turn out to be the case. We've done one experiment, the collaborators at Q have done one experiment where, in fact, if they come back later and adoptively transfer T cells in um, using a, an OVA model, you get a big accumulation of the OVA positive T cells. You, you are drawing the T cells back in. We did one experiment with OVA where we put in a B16 OVA tumor and saw enhanced priming of the OT1 T cells in the draining node, right? So there is this real potential to drive adaptive immunity. It just turns out that it's not necessary, as Steve points out, it's not necessary for the initial phase. It might be really important in the downstream phase, and we don't mean by any way to say it's not important or we will ignore it. You know, the experiment I want to do when we have time and money is obviously take come back in with Charles's NKG2D cards and say, hey, if we light those tumors up with Ray-1, are they better targets? Does the bacterial priming actually increase T-cell infiltration? Those are, those are things we hope and plan to do. Um, but there's clearly something interesting going on with the, this early innate system that we don't fully understand. Yeah, hi. Do you ever see where normal cells uh, cause a, an immune response? I don't, I'm, could, you, could you clarify what you mean by normal non, cells? Non-tumor cells, in other words, do you ever see an autoimmune response from that? Oh, hmm. Is it always I, tumor cells? Well, interestingly, okay, so, so if, we, if, we take the, if we take the animal and we just treat an animal with the killed Klebsiella, and we don't manipulate it, we don't add tumor, we do actually see, in the blood especially, we see hematopoietic induction of a lot of neutrophils, more NK cells, you get this quick release from the bone marrow of a lot more innate immune effectors, which would be very consistent with a typical like, acute infection. So the body's lighting up like there's acute infection. We do actually, with the Klebsiella, see some inflammation in the lung. You do see some accumulation of <coughs> neutrophils, macrophages, NK cells in the lungs, whether you put the tumor in or not. We haven't really systematically <coughs> characterized do those cells go any place other than lung? I can tell you that, that there is a minor accumulation in the lung even without the tumor. Whether they go any place else or not, I don't know. What I can tell you is if we use something like um, E. coli, 
uh, and, and we didn't do it. Our collaborators in Vancouver did it. They used E. coli, found a big accumulation in the colon, a minor accumulation in the lung, but an order of magnitude less than what they saw in the colon. And these were mice that were not manipulated. Um, so the idea would be, what if you have colon cancer? Could you use an, an E. coli-based product to target colon cancer on the premise you might have an innate memory in that compartment? Um, Certainly what they, they've done, we did in a collaborative, in a, we did the mouse work and they did a clinical trial that we published, it's not a clinical trial, to be clear, it's a compassionate use trial. The E. coli had really marked efficacy in patients with Crohn's. We've, we're continuing to collaborate with the company. They are launching a phase one clinical of the killed Klebsiella in patients with, with recurrent non-small cell lung cancer. And the, the goal of that trial will primarily be correlative to, to do in blood samples and lavage samples to ask, do we alter the microenvironment? Do we alter the <coughs> microenvironment with the treatment? It won't be a treatment trial. It'll be a safety trial with correlates. Um, but that, that's where we are. So yeah, it, it does have some effect. I think the tumor seems to amplify the effect. Hey, Bill. Two quick ones. Um, <clears throat> can you remind me of the kinetics and the basic Klebsiella priming and challenge kind of We've, experimental design. The way we did it was to challenge the mice with Klebsiella, rest them for a minimum of 21 days, often longer, but a minimum of 21 days. And we had, we had actually gotten a dose of Klebsiella from, from collaborators. We got Klebsiella. We didn't do every mouse, obviously, but we did a cohort of mice where we used our dose of Klebsiella Within seven days, we could no longer, by PCR, detect Klebsiella signatures in the lungs. So it suggested to us in that model, the infection is resolved within seven days. I wasn't going there. Where okay. I was going but then the yeah. So it's 21 days. So I was just thinking of the trained immunity that our own Rob Kramer and many authors in the yep. science paper a couple of years ago, and I think yep. 21, 28 days might be on the boundary of the that kind of effect. But I wonder if it's useful to think about this maybe not as NK memory, although. Perhaps that yep. exists in the literature. Yep. There's some kind of innate trained immunity that lasts for a shorter period of time than yep. classic T cell memory. So, the issue, so, we're working with Rob on a project that I did not show you. Um, Matt in the lab is doing beta glucan, which is a, a, a fungal cell wall molecule. And Matt has really nice data to show that we can knock down lung tumors using the beta glucan. Um, we thought the same thing early on. And yet, the, the two things that seem to work against it is Rob doesn't. Rob and his colleagues don't really see. They see that the, the trained innate immunity is mostly confined to the macrophage compartment. And we actually haven't formally. We tried. We tried using clodronate and knocking out the macrophages, and it became very problematic, especially in the lungs, to knock them out. And yet, the NK cell study seems to really show they're important. We haven't definitively ruled out that macrophages aren't important. However. Mice that sat on the shelf for six or seven, actually seven months, I think, responded equivalently to the Klebsiella reactivation. Mice that could been, be a conversion to adaptive somewhere. You haven't had those mice mm -hmm. at six months yet to nope. pinpoint that on NK cells? Is that we right? haven't done that for NK right. cells. That's correct. So, so you know, we can't rule it out, but, but there's, there's, we don't have strong evidence to support that it's likely to be that. I guess I was thinking of expanding the, yep. the envelope of what mm -hmm. trained immunity might mean and not yep. make it only mean monocyte macrophages of PMS, but that other innate players might behave similarly. It, it could be. It's, yeah. 
Well, good. You can you can review my R01 application and write AIM 2.2. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous work. Yeah. I can tell you. <laughs> no. Hey, Steve. Uh, among the many surprising results was the fact that the loss of mighty 88 did not block the effect. Uh -huh. um, so, what is recognizing this dead prep of bacteria? We, we, we don't know. Um, as you well know, there are, there are other adapter proteins besides MyD88. So we can't, we can't make the can statement that we're knocking out all TLR responses. Well, you're certainly knocking out the obvious. We, we are. We are. And so um, our, our collaborators in Vancouver, they've imported TRIF knockout mice, which is another major adapter protein. Mm -hmm. They're breeding up TRIF knockouts. Um, we're debating right now whether we should, I guess we should have TRIF MyD88 doubles. And obviously that's going to take some time. But um, so there, we've, you know, we made the decision, they're going to pursue, they're going to pursue that particular line to say really, truly, if we get rid of all the TLR signaling. Beyond that, we're really at the level of saying what we think we may be doing is starting some shotgunning, which is to actually do treatments and pull out single cell, isolate single cell suspensions out of the lungs and really start asking what cells are we lighting up because we've had, we've had trouble to this point really understanding. We also at this point don't understand exactly whether the Klebsiella induces activated cells that then go into the lung or Klebsiella goes into the lung and activates cells there. And, and that's something we want to look at as well. Which to me is also almost a fundamental question in vaccines, period. Mm -hmm. We all get our sub-Q vaccine. Yeah. Right? And then it's protecting us against flu. Mm -hmm. right? And the question becomes, is it because the antigens and the adjuvant end up also in the lungs? Which I don't think that's understood. No, I love to tell my students the story about my father-in-law who's a physician and every year he calls because his office gets the flu vaccine earlier than it's generally available and he calls and says, I'm coming to vaccinate you. And you know, there's nothing you want to hear more from your father-in-law than I'm coming to inject you. And um, so he came one year and he said, I found this new way to inject you that doesn't hurt. And he said, hold your arm up this way and he took the needle and he went like this. I was like, okay, muscle. Yeah, fat, right? I was like, I think it's supposed to be IM. I think that was IF. And he said, oh, same difference, same difference, right? Doesn't matter. Well, it turns out, guess who got the flu, right? And then it comes out that later that year that they had a flu, out, a flu epidemic in Australia. And in Australia, they still administer the flu vaccine into the buttocks. And for some reason that year, they had a shortage of the particular kind of needles they used to do the injections. And so they used insulin syringes to do the injections that have really short needles. And what did they do? They didn't get quite IM. So, so you know, you can go down the whole path with that. But, you know, I, I often tell my students, you know, it's like real estate location matters, right? And with antibodies, maybe not so much, but you know, with these cell base, these things where it's cells, it goes back to the silly baseball thing, which is the best cell in the world doesn't help you if it's not on site. And so we, and we don't know yet. We don't know whether we're 
inducing cells in that compartment. Now that's my, you know, that's my bias. My bias is the bacterial infection is laying down some memory and we're reactivating it. But you're, you're absolutely right. We have a ways to go to prove that. But the premise we think is exciting is if that's true, then that means we can take something like Klebsiella and say 98% of the people who walk through the door have already laid down a memory to this. Can we take advantage of that in some relatively benign way? All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.